All right, Troy, this is your show. Go ahead. Just kidding. <laughs> don't put me on the spot like that, man. You know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> All right, here we go. Who cares about men's health? Providing information, inspiration, and motivation to better understand and engage in your health so you feel better today and in the future. Got some guys here that care about our health. We're proud to say it, too. My name is Scott Singpill. I am the manager of thescoperadio.com, and I care about men's health. And I'm Dr. Troy Madsen. I'm an emergency physician at the University of Utah, and I care about men's health. I'm Thunder Jalili. I'm a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology, and I care about men's health. All right. Today on the show, what's wrong with a few extra pounds? Is that a bad thing or not? Um, we're going to talk about, um, you know, your diet, your nutrition, that extra weight you may be carrying around and how that could impact your uh, health today and in the future as well. So it, right after the holidays and uh, you, you tune into your favorite podcast, who cares about men's health and boom, this is the topic we choose. I'm sure you're like, thanks guys. I just got done gluttonizing from Halloween uh, uh, through New Year's. And this is when we're going to talk about a few extra pounds. So Thunder, from a nutrition standpoint, you know, we talk about proper nutrition and exercise in the core four for health now and later. And one of those reasons is to keep your weight within a healthy range. But why does that matter? Uh, we've learned that knowing why we do things is important for us to actually follow through on those things. So what's wrong with extra pounds? Well, there are several health risks associated with extra pounds. I think the one that most people know about is the fact that it increases your risk for diabetes. And uh, it's actually the weight gain that happens around the middle so, you know, around the belly, that's the that's kind of the worst kind in terms of increasing diabetes risk. And that happens to affect men more than women. So as a guy, you know, when you see uh, the belly start to get bigger, which happens after the holidays, that's uh, not always a good thing. Uh, with, you know, women, the risk is a little less. They tend to gain weight in different places, you know, more around the extremities and the uh, legs and the, and the rear end. And that's that's not as bad as far as diabetes risk. So that's the main one. And then the other one that uh, has been getting more attention lately is actually the uh, fact that obesity is related to cancer risk. So it turns out that that's another risk factor for cancer is obesity. And there's now you know uh, some work that's actually being done in our department trying to also establish a link between metabolic syndrome, which is what happens when people gain weight, and having that be the link to increased cancer risk. So when we talk about a few extra pounds, Thunder, are we talking like, you know, I just did not do super well eating over the holidays. I put on five pounds. Are we talking 10 pounds, 20 pounds? Are we talking BMI, you know, looking at that? Any, anything that you can put there in terms of like a cutoff where you really see that risk? Yeah. So uh, if you want to just take the straight clinical approach, BMI the cutoff where you start to see increased health risks is a BMI of 25. Uh, so 25 to like 29.9, that is the range that is called overweight. And that's where you see these health risks go up. And obviously, the greater the BMI, the more those health risks go up. Um, to translate that into pounds, you know, what does that mean? Because um, most people are not quite sure how to make a connection between, say, a BMI of 27 and, you know, extra pounds. Um, it's an easy calculation to do. There's lots of online calculators that can help you do that if you want to go in and type in your, your body weight and your height, and it can spit out your BMI. But in general, you know, if somebody is um, probably 15 to 20 pounds over their ideal body weight, their BMI is going to be in a range that's going to be, you know, around that kind of mid, mid like 27 or so. And that's where the, uh, 
the health risks are going to increase. But I encourage everyone to, you know, go online, find one of those BMI calculators and and try it out. It's good to know where you're at. So I'm standing in front of the mirror right now, um, <laughs> looking. <laughs> Always a bad idea. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm looking at my stomach, right? So is it just the front part of my stomach or the love handle slash muffin top? Does that count? Or what are we talking here? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's all there. It's everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to put my shirt back on and uh, back away from the mirror slowly, not at this yeah. point. Yeah, and, and mostly the abdominal obesity that that is you know, the, the subject of concern that is kind of the front, you know, like as your belly protrudes out, um, love handles are a bit more subcutaneous, you know, and that's, that's not quite as bad. If you think about like the anatomy of the body, like the fat that's packed in around the intestines and, and the organs, that's, that's the kind that, uh, is more associated with, uh, with diabetes risk. So you talked about uh, metabolic, uh, what would you, would you call it? Melo- metabolic uh, disease? Is metabolic that what- syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is um, three out of the following five conditions. Either somebody has kind of high blood pressure, maybe not the blood pressure that we would classify as classic high blood pressure, but that borderline high blood pr- pressure. Um, they may have slightly elevated cholesterol. Again, on its own, maybe it wouldn't be the first thing of concern, but it's elevated more than normal. They may have slightly higher blood glucose levels, which is indicative of prediabetes. Uh, and they probably have extra weight around the middle, you know, around the, the belly that we were talking about. And they may have uh, more fat, uh, which we call triglycerides, in their bloodstream. So if somebody has three out of, out of those conditions I described or more, then we would say they have metabolic syndrome. You know, if somebody has like this undiagnosed hypertension, well, maybe they're running around with like a blood pressure that's you know, five, 10 points above what we would classify as normal. And that would maybe fly under the radar, uh, you know, when they would go get a health screening or whatever. But that over time, that can increase risk. Is, a, is the fat the cause of these things uh, starting to, to happen? Or is the fat the indication these things are going to happen? Does that make sense? Because the yeah, fat is an indication yeah, of a probably. lifestyle that somebody has maybe, uh, you know, been doing that is not the healthiest. Um, yeah, I would, I would say the fat is an indication of the lifestyle that could affect some of those factors because we know lifestyles involved with cholesterol or hypertension or obviously blood sugar. So if somebody is gaining weight, that's for me, uh, and Troy can chime in on this for me, that's like the first kind of warning sign. Let's take a closer look and see what else happens to be there. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right, Scott, and obviously Thunder. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's one of those things where, is it a chicken and egg thing? Is it because these other things are going on? But my understanding is they're all interrelated and yeah, one may cause the other, but then the other is there and then it feeds into the other things. So I I do think that putting on that extra weight and obesity is going to make you more likely to have that blood sugar. That's going to be a little bit too high. And then often once you get into more of the diabetic issues, then you're going to see more high blood pressure with it and heart disease and all that as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say if, if one is definitely the, the thing that precipitates everything else, but I think definitely the obesity is something that really gets that ball rolling, especially if you've got any sort of genetic tendency toward these things or any, any sort of just mild underlying issue, it's really going to push that forward to where it gets much more severe. Sounds like those video games where, you know, you have to string together moves and you get times two, times three, times four, yeah. times five. You know, it sounds sounds kind of like that's what this is, except for not in a good way, you know? Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. Like if you're already struggling with your genetics and then you have a tendency toward high cholesterol or toward high blood pressure or diabetes, and then you throw in obesity, you're right. It just, it just makes that just snowball and take off. What is the turnaround for somebody that has found themselves in a range that's concerning? They've gone online. They've, they, you know, did the calculator. They figured out their BMI. How do you start to turn that around? Is it just exercise? Is that what it is? Oh, it's the whole package. It's exercise and it's what you eat. Um, it's, really difficult to use only exercise to control your weight unless you're young and you know you exercise like crazy then you can probably do it but if you're like you know a middle-aged guy and you're looking to control your weight or lose weight you're going to have to bring nutrition into it as well thunder what about long-term risk like i've got this bmi calculator up on my computer and I'm putting in the weight I was five years ago when I was living in California, just living the life of convenience. And every day there were snacks in the break room and I was eating snacks and my BMI was in the 25 to 29 range. Mm -hmm. How does that compute to longer term risk? Like, is my risk dropping immediately as I lose that weight or does that time at that range put me at risk of a heart attack in 10 years or any idea, you know, in terms of uh, what that means longer term? Yeah, I would I would guess that your risk does drop um, fairly quickly after you assume a, a normal body weight or healthy healthy body weight, I should say. So um, yeah, so it shouldn't be any reason to say, oh well, I've already been you know overweight. So what's the point? The damage is done. You know, I would always try to go towards healthy weight because you, your risk can always be reduced. Yeah, and I guess I personally, you know, I and I again, it's I I was actually a little surprised to put that in, and I think at the time I didn't really realize exactly where I was in terms of BMI, or maybe I justified it or something, and I was telling myself it was muscle mass, which it wasn't, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I I'm hoping it's kind of like some of these ads and some of these graphs you see about quitting smoking about how. Yeah. You know, you may not think that it's making a big difference, but one month after you quit smoking, your risk is dropping. Then you look at that risk drop a year and then two years out and yeah. it's a pretty dramatic drop in your risk just, just with that change. And I imagine the same thing would apply to, to weight loss as well. Yeah. And, you know, and there's been human studies and animal studies that have, that have uh, found that, you know, where you take a obese animal or a human and and, you know, weight loss occurs and then, you know, you find that their, you know, bodily functions improve, like their endothelial function and their blood vessels is better and their insulin sensitivity gets better and things like that. So, so yeah, we do have a fair amount of evidence that shows weight loss always results in some sort of improvement. I'd like to jump in and say, Troy, at no point have I ever thought that you would have been pushing a BMI that was unhealthy. Uh, I need to also confess, I at one point... <laughs> maybe now again, who knows, uh, have been pushing a BMI that is not healthy because I would not have considered you overweight. So I think it's good, even if you don't realize, I think your story is really great to maybe check that number out just to make sure um, yeah, because it can make a big difference. It's eye-opening. Like I said, I'd never really thought about it till we were just talking now and I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, like, well, where am I now? Okay, good. I thought, well, where was I five years ago? And I thought, and I put it in there like, wow, I definitely was in the overweight range. So it's, and, you know, it wasn't one of those things where anyone ever necessarily told me, hey, you're overweight. People aren't really going to tell you that anyway, hopefully. But, <laughs> but uh, I certainly did not think of myself as overweight. So it's a little bit eye-opening when you actually plug those numbers in there and see what 
what it results as. And can I add two quick things as long as we're on the topic of BMI? The thing is, there's so many people in our society who are overweight. Now, I'm, I'm making a distinction between overweight and obese. Being overweight is almost normal, really. Yeah. You know, so the thing is, like, people will say, oh, well, you know, he looks pretty good. You know, maybe his belly is a little big, but it doesn't register because that's what you see all the time. So that kind of desensitizes us to what overweight actually is. And then the second point I'll make about BMI is it is just considering your overall body weight. It doesn't discriminate whether that weight is from fat mass or muscle mass. And, um, you know, in the classes I teach, we always do BMI. And I come across, you know, fair number of, of young men who will have you know, kind of a higher, like a BMI of 26 or 27, which is in that overweight range. But but they're not overweight at all. They're just more muscular than than the average person. So you have to keep that in mind, you know, to, that that can affect BMI, but not in a negative way. And like I said, that's that's how I justified it in my mind. Yeah. But but it was not the case. Yeah, so. I think I think you know. You can borrow Scott's mirror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it might be 28 and you can tell yourself it's muscle, but I think if it's muscle, you know. <laughs> All right. Hey Troy, since you've got the BMI thing up, why don't you walk us through what that looks like so we all have a better idea of what we'd be getting into? Yeah, so I just Googled calculate BMI, and it took me to the NIH, the NHLBI, National Heart, Lung, and, Lung and Blood Institute, uh, to their BMI calculator. So I just put my numbers in here. There's a standard. There's metric. We're going to use standard just because using feet, inches, and pounds. My height is 5 feet, and I'm going to put 9.5 inches. Sometimes I will say 5'10", but it's, <laughs> it's 5 point, COVID, COVID has gotten I'll Troy be, down a half an inch. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> honest <man>. here. <laughs> it's five, 5 feet, 9.5 inches. My current weight is it's about 153 pounds. Uh, so that puts my BMI at 22.3. So the normal range it gives me on here is a normal weight is 18.5 to 24.9. Um, so I'm within that range. But then I thought back, okay, where was I five years ago? And I peaked out there at 175 pounds. My height was the same. It hadn't changed. So <laughs> still five feet, 9.5 inches. So that's a 20 pound difference, 22 wow. pound difference. And at that point, my BMI was 25.5. So overweight is 25 to 20, 29.9. Although I did not realize it at that time, I was at that time in that overweight range. Surprising for me to think about that because I didn't certainly didn't think of myself as overweight. Thunder. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. So we've uh, we've discussed that, you know, this is not a healthy thing that you should try to get back to more of a healthy weight. Exercise is definitely a part of that equation or activity. You know, you should be getting that 30 minutes every day. But um, unless you're young and exercising a lot, that's not the only thing. So you're going to have to take control of uh, some of the things you're eating. I think a lot of us realize, you know, we're not probably eating the healthiest and we can make some adjustments. But what are some of the things that you think could make the biggest impact right off the bat? Where are some some changes that could be made right away that could make a difference? So what I recommend to people, um, the first thing they should look at is their sugar intake. And the reason why I pick on that is because there's a lot of hidden sugar in foods that we don't really suspect. Yeah, you know, between drinks, uh, you know, like iced teas and obviously sodas and 
juices and snacks and things like that. It's just easy to to have a lot of that in there. All right. So sugars would be one of the first things, uh, the obvious sugars in those sodas and then the hidden sugars and stuff like sweetened yogurt, like any sort of flavored yogurt that's not a plain Greek yogurt is going to have hidden sugars. Get rid of those. What would be a good step two then? Um, A good step two, I would say, is look at the timing of your eating. You know, when do you eat? Uh, when do you snack? Things like that. Because uh, sometimes people are grazers, you know, they'll they'll tend to kind of nibble and munch like the whole day. And um, that basically puts them in a position where their insulin levels are always high. And insulin is the hormone that's needed to, to make fat and to store nutrients. So looking at the, your food habits, your behavioral habits is 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 another way. Maybe instead of eating 18 hours out of a 24-hour cycle, try to eat, you know, eight or 10 hours. That's a, that's a great tool to use. If you find yourself overweight and you're trying to lose that weight, is that something that you should go to a a health professional and should be done under the supervision of a health professional? Or is this something that a person can do on their own safely? What is both of your guys' take on that thunder first? Uh, I would say if you're just trying to lose, you know, 10, 20 pounds, something like that, then just do it on your own. You know, um, if someone is very obese, uh, like with a BMI of like over 40, and they're in a position where they have life-threatening conditions, they need to lose, you know, 100 pounds or 200 pounds. At that point, you know, I would recommend those people get involved with the physician because they need a more drastic uh, weight loss program. And it's also worth thinking, you know, Scott, you mentioned working with a healthcare professional, if you have just struggled and you can't get the weight off and you're morbidly obese, consider gastric bypass, consider bariatric surgery. I mean, it's been proven it works. It's successful. You know, most of the time people are able to lose weight. They're able to keep the weight off long term. Obviously, we want to talk about diet and exercise, everything there. But if this is about really trying to reduce your long term risk of heart disease and diabetes and everything else and you just can't, it's just nothing's worked for you. Talk to your doctor and that's something to consider. And and for some people, that's what they need, and it it does the job. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's important to make a distinction between someone that's trying to lose 15, 20 pounds versus someone who is 75, you know, 80, 90 pounds overweight, and they have pre-diabetes, and, and maybe they have high blood pressure. Um, so they have documented medical reasons that they need to, to lose weight to improve those conditions. Um, what we're talking about, you know, in contrast is, you know, someone who is slight, somewhat overweight, 20 pounds, and they know if they stay on that road in 10 years, they're going to have an increased risk of, of various ailments. So exactly. yeah, I think that's important for listeners to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about getting in swimsuit shape and getting gastric bypass <laughs> or that. This is, <laughs> this, right. is, this is about taking a surgical step to reduce your long-term, you know, very real risk of heart disease and stroke and everything else. And serious medical issues in in long in someone who's been struggling with long-term morbid obesity. So this is, yeah, it's not, not really what we're talking about, but again, getting back to that question, when do you talk to your doctor? When do you think about medically supervised things? I think that's, that's probably more where you, you may want to, to look into that. Some good lessons. Fat is an indicator that um, you might have some other health issues down the road. So even if it's just a Uh, You know, a little bit more than you'd like, perhaps start turning that thing around sooner than later before it becomes much more difficult. Because as we've learned today, that extra fat can impact your health in a lot of different ways, including diabetes, 
and uh, heart disease and cancer. So thanks, Thunder, for that great information today. And thank you for caring about men's health. Troy, are you ready for a, a new segment idea? We're going to just kind of float out there, see how it works. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's try something All right, new. So as guys, uh, I think at least I can only speak for myself, but I, I like this feeling of being prepared to handle situations yeah. that come up. So like if a situation comes up and I'm out in the world, I'm like, I know how to help with that. So, um, you know, this is who cares about men's health. You are an emergency room physician. So these are going to be, a, you know, a little bit more serious things. But I, I think I want to call the segment, how do you handle it? How do you handle so, it? I like it. How do you handle it? So we're going to talk about some things that might happen out in the world. And hopefully, you know, you are going to be able to give us some advice on if this happens, how we could be helpful and useful in that moment. So we know how to handle it. So today, I thought it might be fun to do frostbite Mm. not fun to get frostbite fun to do frostbite and you think you've had frostbite at one point in your life oh yeah didn't you tell me that story Uh, it was awful yeah yeah Yeah, i was nervous (laughs) it was bad it was one of those things i was out on a long snowshoe run in the middle of winter you know and it's like eight degrees out and my feet are covered in snow the whole time just in powder and i get up you know to the point where i'm turning around to come back down and i think wow i can't feel my feet but my feeling will come back as i get closer to home and lower elevation and as things warm up a little bit and I get home and I take my shoes off and I still can't feel my feet. Like right now, as I'm talking about it, I still have that sensation, you know, just thinking to myself from the ankle down, I can't feel my feet. It is, this is the weirdest thing. And I peeled my socks off and my socks were pretty much stuck to my feet because they were frozen to my feet. (laughs) And I looked at my feet and it looked like textbook pictures of frostbite. Like my feet were just white and I touched my feet and I could not feel anything. And I started to feel very nervous. Uh, it was scary. Uh, so yeah, I, I did experience at least some mild frostbite. Uh, fortunately, I recovered from it. Uh, but we can talk a little bit more about that process of, of what I did and to, to treat that and how you do that. But it was, it was a scary experience. When you saw that, was there a little bit of a denial? You're like, I know I'm a doctor. I know I've studied this. I know what it looks like. I'm seeing it on myself. No, that can't be frostbite. No, it was more like I usually go one of the two extremes. I'm usually in complete denial or I go all in and I'm like, wow, I have frostbite. I'm going to die and I'm going to lose my feet. And and that that's kind of the extreme I went to. It was more like, wow, should I call 911? I thought, wow. Well, and that, yeah, it, yeah, I was nervous. It was it was one of those things where it was a combination both of being like, okay, and I'll, you know, and then there was a lot of pain following that time. So it was both that pain and then also, you know, definitely a high, a high sense of anxiety uh, associated with that. So, yeah. So painful, your feet are white. Um, those are some of the things to look for. You said there's different degrees of frostbite. So how do you handle it? Yeah. Uh, cover, cover some of that for us. So I think one of the important things about handling frostbite is, first of all, if you're in a situation, let's say I were up there at the top of my run and I'm at 9,000 feet and my feet are in the snow. And I think to myself, I think I have frostbite. I should not make a fire there and boil water and try and get water hot and try and rewarm my feet because my feet are going to get cold again. You don't want to thaw it out and then have it freeze again. That's the number one. So that's like a worse, that's a worse thing. That's a, a, okay. Okay. Don't thaw it out. Do not treat frostbite unless you're in a situation where your feet can stay thawed out. So if you're if you're up there in that scenario and you're like, wow, I have frostbite, just deal with it and get to a point where you can then be in a safe place and treat the frostbite and not have it refreeze because that's when really bad damage can happen. So that's probably the number one take home of it. 
All right. Uh, but then once you get to a point where you can thaw your feet out uh, or your hands or whatever it is, you know, feet, kind of fingertips, uh, toes, those are the most common sites where we see frostbite. The way you want to do it is get a warm bath, about 100 degrees. So something that feels warm to you, you put your hand in the water. It's like, okay, this is warm. It's not like crazy hot where it's burning my hand, but it definitely feels warm. And you want to you want to rewarm your feet in that. So, you know, basically what I did, I took our tub, our bathtub, I filled it up. I just started running some warm water in there and I put my feet in there and it hurt like crazy. So as that blood started coming back into my feet and the tissue started to rewarm, it hurt like crazy and it itched and I just wanted to scratch at my feet and it was very uncomfortable. And that's the biggest thing with rewarming frostbite is it does hurt. And if we see it in the emergency department, sometimes we have to give pain medications with it to help people to tolerate that. But you want to just have warm water where you're circulating that water through there, like, you know, maybe get the bath full to a certain point, then just keep running some more water in there. And go through that process. And for me, I did that for about 15 minutes. And then I looked at my feet after I had rewarmed it. And I actually sent a picture to Laura, to my wife at that point. And I said, I'm a little bit nervous because it just had this funky, weird appearance. Like my feet were all bruised, uh, you know, as that tissue was rewarming and uh, blood was trying to work its way back in. And it was kind of scary looking. Um, and that's often where the damage happens in frostbite. It's not the freezing piece. Usually the freezing doesn't cause the tissue damage. It's during that rewarming process that it can get damaged. Um, but I tried just to, you know, do what I would normally do with any sort of patient and just say, okay, we're going to go through a rewarming process now. And then I, I took some pain medication with it too. I took a Tylenol to help with some of the pain I was experiencing. Uh, and then after I'd done that first 15 minutes, I kind of, you know, took 10 minutes off and said, okay, we're getting there. I'm still nervous about this, but let's do another rewarming, you know, trial in the bath and see how things go. And then I went through that. And then after that second 15 minutes of rewarming my feet, things weren't back completely to normal, but I was getting some feeling back in my feet. At that point, the tissue was looking a little more normal, not really that crazy, weird bruised look to it. Um, and that's, you know, it's the same process I'd recommend someone go through if this happens to them. If you're in a situation where you are at the top or wherever of the 9,000 uh, foot peak or wherever you might happen to be, uh, is there a point where you just make it your priority that I'm going to stay here until somebody can come get me and I'm going to start rewarming stuff right now? No, nah, I like, wouldn't. No. Because then, then you got hypothermia and everything else you got to deal with. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if, I'd, right. if I'd stayed up here, like I said, it was a the high that day was in the single digits. And um, if I'd stayed up there and I'd stopped moving altogether, uh, then I'm risking hypothermia. And then you're risking not only loss of limb, but loss of life. Um, and you you want to just keep moving. Just keep moving. This is going to happen probably when you're, you know, you're somewhere in the backcountry on a hike or, or you're snowshoeing or snowmobiling. Yes, snowmobiling, something like that. Yeah, don't stay put. Just, you know, work your way back and, and work your way back calmly and recognize that, yeah, you've got some frostbite, but you can deal with it and you can work through it and, and get things back to normal. So the protocol that you would follow in the ER is literally what you described that you did at home. You just there's you don't have any uh, secret weapon. Yeah, no secret weapon. The treatment for uh, for frostbite is rewarming and it really just comes down to try and get it rewarmed as soon as you can. You just want to keep rewarming until that tissue no longer feels like a block of ice. <laughs> that crazy feeling that I felt as I touched my feet uh, where it just it felt like ice. You want to get it rewarmed to where it feels like normal tissue. All right. How would you handle it? Our very first one on frostbite. 
How are you feeling about that? I'm uh, feeling good, you know, and it's something I think it's very relevant right now. We're going to see, I think, a lot more of these things this winter, frostbite, potentially avalanche injuries, things like this, stuff that happens in the backcountry, because my guess is we're going to see a whole lot more people getting out in the backcountry this winter, uh, just with COVID and everything else. So this is one thing to keep in mind, you know, know what frostbite is, know how to deal with it, be prepared for it, know what to do if it happens. Time for just going to leave this here. It might have something to do with health or it could be a random thought that we have. Just going to leave this here. Troy, do you ever run on the treadmill? I do. You ever get on that thing and think, oh man, this is like, this should be a form, this is a form of punishment. Oh, absolutely. That's why I run outside. (laughs) Um, So I found an article in the New York Times. The treadmill was once a criminal sentence. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. And there's a picture that show prisoners on a treadmill in London, London around 1850. Um, so yeah, the tr- the treadmill, <laughs> the treadmill the used to be of, a form of punishment. It was a form of punishment. So probably be considered cruel and unusual punishment. That's that's why it doesn't exist anymore. You you can't do that to prisoners now. Yeah, you're right, and, yeah. and you shouldn't. And if you, you throw golf, if you throw golf on the TV while you have them on the treadmill, that's <laughs> cruel and unusual. That's, that's like the that's, worst. That's awful. Yeah, well, Scott, I'm just going to leave this here. You know, I ran across an interesting website recently. It opened my eyes to, you know, some some very fascinating pedestrian laws. And I am very in tune to pedestrian laws because I am often a pedestrian. And when you're a pedestrian, you really feel like you're you're kind of putting yourself out there. You know, I've I've been in some places as a pedestrian on the road where it's downright scary. But let me ask you about this, Scott. You know, these you've got kind of the crosswalks that are just the two lines going across the road. And then you've got the crosswalks that are like those thick things that look like railroad ties going across the road. Do you know what the difference is in the law with those things? I didn't know there was a legal difference. There is a legal difference. If someone is in a crosswalk when it's just the two stripes going across the road, you just have to wait until they're not on your side of the road and then you can go. If you're at a crosswalk with those big railroad tie looking things, and those are usually school zones, you have to wait until the person is completely off the crosswalk before you can go. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that difference because I, um, at one point in my life, I had heard that here in Salt Lake, that if um, the pedestrian was in the crosswalk, but they were on the other side of traffic, not my, my, not my area, yeah, that even then you weren't supposed to... D- to, you were supposed to let them completely clear the crosswalk, but there's actually visual indicators. So that's interesting. That's good to know. Yeah. So Scott, this came up on a website, actually the state of Utah put together. So it's, you know, some of this may be different state to state, but the website is drivermyths.utah.gov. It kind of goes through some of these things. And so, you know, and some of these are a little tricky. So it was, it was a little bit surprising to see what laws are specific to pedestrians and crosswalks and what we really need to be aware of. All right, time to say the things that you say at the end of podcast because we are at the end of ours. First of all, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do it a lot of different ways. The way that would be kind of cool is if you called 60155-SCOPE, that's 60155-SCOPE, and leave us a voicemail with your message, your question, your feedback, whatever. But there are other methods, there are other methods as well. You can contact us, hello at thescoperadio.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash who cares men's health. Our website is who cares men's health.com. Also subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, whatever works for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring about men's health.